So now let me invite Jim Byrne to the podium for the Q&A session. Jim, please. And, uh, uh, yeah, question is, I see Henning has already found the mic. Please use the mic. Uh, state your name before you ask your question and be brief with your preamble. You have the floor, sir. Hi, Bern. Am I on here? Yeah, I am. Uh, hi, Jim. Um, thank you for uh, sharing that movie, and um, I think it was a very good educational tool. Um, you know I'm a retired scientist from the research station, so one thing that I was missing a bit, while it was very good in dealing with qualitative aspects of the situation and the dilemma, do you have any kind of um, quantitative data at what level do nitrogen levels become dangerous to human life, to animal life, and so on? At what levels uh, do the algae just explode? Anything quantitative in that regards? Well, thanks, thanks, Henning, and good to see you, too. Um, the, the short answer is no. Uh, you know, in my evolution from being a scientist which I'd like to still think I am a scientist. I'm a climate modeler. I do microclimate modeling and, and uh, look at environmental change. Um, but, you know, with due respect to the, someone needs to know, that ha needs to have those numbers, the, the audience that we're targeting does not. We're looking, you know, to change a political, social uh, uh, approach to the way we deal with environment. Therefore, you know, we weren't looking to, to characterize the numbers. Without a doubt, you may have noticed that any number of the, uh, of the, the folks that were in there, I, I went to some of my very favorite colleagues and, and brilliant colleagues, Canada Research Chairs in many locations and, and outstanding colleagues. They, they have numbers. They're certainly available. The numbers are available. The engineering firm, for example, from Vancouver, who, you know, who are doing that phosphorus mining out of sewage, they have numbers. Numbers are available, but I think, you know, our point here was to... Was to essentially, you know, inform people in a qualitative way and let them know that, that not only do we have this very challenging environmental problem, but that we actually have some suitable solutions if we just have the political will. So that's what we wanted to go to. Yep, go, go ahead with your question, please. My name's Cheryl Bradley. Um, Jim, I'm wondering if you can provide some insights into how much the water quality issues in Lake Winnipeg are um, the cause of activities in the basin directly around the lake versus related to um, flows coming into the lake from say, the South Saskatchewan Basin or the uh, Red... I think the Red River Assiniboine enters Lake Winnipeg as well. So mm -hmm. is, there, is there any good information on um, the proportion of those inputs into the problem of um, eutrophication, eutrophication of the lake? Because I think that would speak a lot to uh, can the problem be remedied by cleaning up point sources and non-point sources immediately around the lake, or is it going to 
require um, much broader efforts than that. I think it's it's it, we do have those numbers, Cheryl, and I, I appreciate the question. Um, you know, and and for example, Lake Winnipeg Research Foundation has those numbers, and many and, and a number of the colleagues I talked to had specific numbers. You know, the the Red River contributes almost fifty percent of the nutrients, but only ten percent of the flow. Uh, the North Saskatchewan or the Saskatchewan River system produces almost or has historically uh, contributed something like almost half of the of the water inflow to to you know particularly the North Basin of, of Lake Winnipeg. So you know those numbers are there again, but our emphasis wasn't the numbers. Uh, we're all contributing in our own ways, without a doubt. Uh, the destruction of wetlands right across the southern prairies, you know, there's virtually no wetlands in, in, in the southern prairies anymore. And, uh, you know, restoring wetlands is, is, is a really important goal, particularly where there were natural wetlands before that served as those kidneys. So, you know, I think we all have our own impact we're all upstream and we're all downstream when it really comes down to it. If you want to deal in any kind of pollutants in the world now, I do a lot of work on pollutants. You know, a lot of those, those agricultural chemicals that we talked about, you see those planes spraying them and helicopters spraying them and even big tractors spraying them, somewhere between 10 and 30, 40% of that material volatilizes. It turns into vapor, goes into the atmosphere, and who knows where it comes down. Uh, you know, so usually it comes down in our mountains um, and in cold areas because that's where it, where it returns to to a liquid and is precipitated out or, or scavenged out of the atmosphere. So, you know, I think we all have to look at it. Now, I, I will, I, you know, I, I do want to exempt to a certain degree, I think our, our you know, for example, our, our water treatment plant and, and our sewage treatment plant in Lethbridge is really a pretty high quality um, uh, plant. So, you know, there are areas where, where cities, where municipalities, where individuals are taking steps. Ike Lanier's, you know, for 27 years, Ike Lanier has no longer been contributing nutrients and water off of his land because he's keeping it all on the land. Um, you know, that's, that's admirable. And zero-till and min-till is spreading. We just probably have to help our agricultural community with, with a little bit more with that. Um, the other area that we, we look at is, you know, we're all... Was there beef in our meal today? Well, there's a, a substantial contribution. Uh, except I must point out my wife, Lee Adam, a co-producer, she had a vegetarian meal. So, you know, that's, that's uh, if there was beef in our meal today, if there was meat in our meal today, that's a major contributor. Um, and we should be looking at that instead of saying, boy, that, it's hard to get rid of that manure, and it's hard to, you know, let's look at turning that into a really powerful resource. Because even if we go to just composting it, that's only the first step. You know, we can do a lot more with manure. We can probably turn it into an energy source. Uh, we can generate methane, we can generate waste heat, we can generate, and it's no longer waste heat then, it's valuable heat. You use it to heat buildings and drive greenhouses, so there's lots of things we can do. We just have to turn our head around instead of saying that the environment is a dumping ground. We have to say, no, you know, what we, what we view as a waste stream, let's look at investigating that waste stream as a resource stream. Okay, another question, please. Hi, Jim. Uh, Ian McKenna, um, is, are, are governments doing anything with regard to that? You usually look to government to, uh, to perhaps uh, uh, be the leader in this, uh, or is the expectation that it's going to be us and small farmers and Aboriginal people? Is this, is this a trick question, Ian? Are you, are, you, are you trying to set me up for something? No. Okay. No, no. <laughs> yes, yes and no. Governments are doing fantastic things. For example, I would look to most of the people that work in government departments, I think, are earnest, sincere, hardworking, and have 
you know, these issues at heart and mind. Uh, I think where we actually lack the, the government leadership is at the political level to say, yes, environment is more important. Yes, protecting, you know, the general health of the environment and the general health of the population is more important. And so let's start keeping a lot more of these, you know, waste streams out of our environment and let's start looking at what we can do with those waste streams. Uh, so, you know, uh, I'd say the same thing for our farmers. You know, by and large, I mean, anybody who's farming today has my admiration because they've stuck through some real tough times. Uh, and, and so, you know, they're, they're doing the best they can in a really tough market, usually driven internationally, not, not by anything we're doing regionally. But what about government regulatory action? You didn't mention that. Well, at, at this point, um, I think we're lacking in regulation in a lot of areas. Um, you know, I, I believe in strong regulation, strong controls. Um, and, and uh, you know, so I think we can definitely improve in regulation. Uh, you know, we should look at, at the details of that, which isn't what I, you know, wanted to do with today. Um, and, and I think we have to get away from a very basic inappropriate action in our in our societies, and that's trading the global commons for short-term economic gain. That's what we do. Put your SHIT in the water, and we'll get better productivity in the short term, and we'll deal with the problem later. And so the user, you know, the person, the value uh, isn't really fully costed out. Governments can do that. Governments should do that. And don't get me started on all the places governments don't do that, or maybe somebody will. Okay. Well, then let's move on to the next question. Go ahead, sir. Yes. I'm Eva Thomas from Pixibute. I'd like to thank you, Jim, for your presentation and for making us aware of the problems we are creating because sometimes it appears that we're developing our economy as if there is no environment existing. Now, uh, talking listening to Ike Lanier, uh, how much has zero till contributed to the depletion of wetlands because the snow falls where it stays and they don't blow on piles so you have less runoff? Yep. Without a doubt, you're, you're, that's correct. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm pleased that came out. We didn't put an explicit statement in the video that addresses that because, in fact, right, we say we have, have you know, drained most of our wetland in Western Canada and that has caused substantially the problem. It's remove those kidneys. And then on the other hand, we have Ike saying, you know, we have to go to zero till because zero till will prevent runoff. But we have no sloughs. We have no duck ponds. What's happened is we have, you know, most of those sloughs and duck ponds that were on Ike's land or your land, you know, were because of tillage. You know, the runoff from tilled land is much higher. We were creating wetland problems for our farming community, or the farming practices were creating wetland problems. But we have many, many natural wetlands that were always there. They were there, you know, nature put them there, and they were drained for agriculture. So those are the wetlands I think we have to look at trying to, to replace. Thank you. Okay, next question, please. Bev Mundell-Atherstone. Thanks, Jim. That, that was fabulous. Very, very fine film. <clears throat> um, and I would take it that you would be for preserving the Castle Crown wilderness area because that's <laughs> that would keep, keep the rain up there. <laughs> okay, my question is really about riparian, riparian areas. And now that, you know, thanks Everett for your question because this kind of leads into it. Okay, now we've got these flat, flat farmlands, you know, 
everything's nice and flat. Um, we've got copperwood out near where I live where the copperwood is just slowly going west and the nice slough that was there is being covered in. So we're seeing all this. But we know that the riparian and waterways, and in particular the willows, take all kinds of things out of the water, including the antibiotics and antidepressants and estrogens, which are bad for us and tend to get into our, our wastewater. So we've got the stormwater and the wastewater, and I've been down to our our water treatment plant and seen, seen this area. Yeah, I know, Trevor. I'm coming to the question. So... <laughs> So we know that the, a lot of crap is going back into the water, even when it's treated. And I'd like to know how how on earth can we put in these riparian waterways? Do we is the idea that they would be parallel to our rivers and um, parallel sort of parallel tracts uh, with all the trees and the willows and and all the different things that that actually take these contaminants out of the water. What, how would this practically, you know, physically occur? Well, now you, you, let me let me just add a little bit to to your uh, question. And actually, if I if I may first pick up on on the Castle Crown Wilderness. Um, I hope that every one of you in this room, I would beg and plead that you would go out of here next time you get close to a politician, you put him or her in a headlock and say, stay the hell out of our mountains and foothills. Because if we ever screw up there, we contaminate water all the way to Hudson's Bay. Okay? And that's something. So no, no matter what else we do, we should stay out of the mountains and foothills in terms of development. That water source is feeding so many people, providing so much water for so many people. We don't need mines and, and coal bed methane and energy recovery in the mountains and foothills. Now, coming back, <clears throat> coming back to, your, to your comment um, or to your question, I mean, riparian systems are, are ecosystems, you know, very unique ecosystems along rivers and streams. Um, the wetlands on the uplands are, you know, are, are sort of are, are different uh, uh, water systems. I mean, it, 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 it goes without saying with my lead-in comment about the Castle Crown and about the foothills and mountains, that we would also stay out of our riparian systems because we're just too close to the river. Um, you know, my, my favorite metaphor is if you contaminate the soils and groundwater systems in and around and anywhere close to a river, you don't have much of an opportunity to clean that up. In fact, you know, the only thing we can do is mine that contamination out, and that's, that's not going to work. So we really should adopt new regulations in terms of what we do in and around river systems, uh, and we should certainly protect those riparian systems. In terms of restoration, the problem with rivers is rivers, you know, humanity's thought that we really control rivers is, is kind of just naive and short-sighted. You know, they'll do what they want in many cases, and the 95 flood was a pretty good demonstration. You know, the, the rivers kind of decided not to take our bridges out in Lethbridge. Uh, it was darn close, right? And so, uh, and there's more of that coming. Believe me, I work in climate change, and 95, you ain't seen nothing yet. Okay, let's move on, please, to the next question. Um, Bob Campbell, uh, great uh, film, so congratulations on that. Thanks, Bob. The Lake Winnipeg was always a great <coughs> freshwater fishery, and a lot of people made their livelihood from that, as well as uh, First Nations people toward the northern end of the lake. Depended on what has been the impact of the fishery in that uh, lake. Actually, that's a, that's a great question, and and if you talk to my colleagues, you know the fishery scientists, they'll say that that in actual fact the fishers are quite happy. 
you know, what we've done, what they've done is they've changed the food web in Lake Winnipeg because algae is the base of the food web. And so if you're going to enhance algae, then you're going to enhance the food web. But what you do is you change the food web. You change the food web from what was there. We've got to make a decision again. That's a global commons. Is that what we want to do? If we really want to farm Lake Winnipeg for fish, then definitely there's been an increase in catch in some areas. But it's terminable. It's not going to last forever. If we still don't clean up the lake, eventually the algal blooms and the dead zones are going to kill everything that's in there. Uh, and, and with Lake Winnipeg, you know, it's a finite area. In the oceans, when we kill an area with a dead zone, you know, usually even in the Gulf of Mexico, one of the biggest dead zones, about 22,000 square kilometers, comes up most years, expands and contracts with the, with the Mississippi flows. Excuse me. <coughs> when, we, when we have that dead zone grow, Nevertheless, even 22,000 square kilometers in an ocean isn't that big. You know, there's, there's adjoining zones where, wildlife, where, where, where the, the marine ecosystem can move back in and repopulate the area. But as dead zones get bigger and bigger, and, and Lake Winnipeg doesn't have this advantage, you know, as, so that, that repopulation, but then in the ocean, a dead zone that's bigger and bigger as they start to overlap, they're not going to repopulate as quickly. Our most profitable fisheries are our marine ecosystems on continental shells. That's where the dead zones are occurring. That dead zone image that you saw, that animation, 450 dead zones around the world. Did you notice that Africa and Asia look pretty good? Very few dead zones around Africa and Asia. Go try to swim there. Try to be a fish there. The reason we don't find any dead zones and can't characterize them is because nobody's looking. But developing world are no better at managing nutrients than we are. So instead of 450, there's probably 900 or 1,200 dead zones around the world. And they're fast working towards coalescing where we won't see, you know, annual or biannual recovery on, on those dead zones. So we really have to fix this problem. Okay. Next question, please. Hello, Jim. Mike Brewstead from uh, the Blood Reserve. And uh, I guess uh, the, your presentation has been very... Uh, educational for me, uh, especially the, the nutrient uh, situation in waterways. Very quickly, I hope uh, the blood reserve does not turn into a dead zone. And I think all of you have read through the uh, media possibility of, uh, well, there is 200, uh, over 200 sections being leased out for oil explora exploration. And two weeks ago, most recently, another company, a third company that wants to drill 100 to 200 more uh, drill holes. Um, my question to you, uh, Jim, is, you know, I think we're at a crossroads ever, first time ever in history uh, of, of regulations. You have the reserve and you have the provincial regulations and the federal regulations, but something seems to be missing in the protection of, of water. And I'll even use one example. Um, on, on the off-reserve land, I think there's a uh, Everybody's a watchdog that nothing's drilled on the, the floodplain areas. And yet on the reserve side, <laughs> they drill in the floodplain areas and 10 yards from, from the, you know, the river banks. What would your uh, advice or recommendation be to the provincial and federal governments in how to protect or curb that we don't destroy our, our, our water systems and our shallow and underground deeper uh, aquifers. What would you tell them? Short answer? Frack off. 
That's what we should tell them. And, and, and I really will take should. that. I will take that fracking, as a good answer. I, I think we want the long answer, Jim. Fracking, fracking is, is, in my view, utterly unsustainable from everything I've been able to fi find in the science literature. Fracking does not return natural gas as a safe, uh, low-carbon-based fuel. In fact, the, the recovery costs around fracking for natural gas make fracking, according to my colleagues at Cornell University, and they have published this in an international journal, worse than coal as a greenhouse con contributor to the Earth's atmosphere. Worse than coal, worse than oil, Worse, <clears throat> worse than conventional gas. That's the only good science literature I have been able to find. The only other thing I can find is energy companies saying, oh, it's great, we're getting natural gas, and we're going to help with the greenhouse footprint. That's wrong as far as I can tell. You know, fracking is a bad technology. We should stop it as soon as possible. Okay. Just one quick closing it's comment. It's going to have to be quick because yeah, other people quickly, are one question. This questions. is a, a FYI for everybody. As of yesterday, ERCB has admitted that hydraulic fracking is contaminating uh, shallow aquifers. As of yesterday, so go from there. Okay, thank you for that information. Next question, please. John McIntyre. Um, I work at the research station. Work with beef cattle. Some of what we're doing with beef, actually, uh, we're working hard to mitigate uh, methane production, for example. Um, you saw what we're doing with the manure as far as uh, composting and all that. Uh, that said, um, I think we need a national strategy to get everybody working together. Uh, our daughter lives on the shore of Lake Winnipeg. She's uh, on a reserve, and they are uh, some of the kids from that reserve go out on the boats, and uh, for some of the research that they're doing, some of the high school kids, and they get a chance to see what's going on as well. Um, we need a national strategy, whether we need a water ombudsman or something of that nature. If, I don't know if you have a comment, any of that. I, I, do, I do have a comment on that. Um, I, I was one of the, the, the lead, uh, the first members in a, and, and the national lead in watershed management with the Canadian Water Network, which was created in the year 2000, and I worked with them for four years. Um, Canadian Water Network did some very wonderful and is continuing to do some very wonderful and positive work. Canadian Water Network will not continue beyond the government founding years because the basic principle of research in our academic institutions now is you must have industry partners. Okay? That makes me want to swear. Okay? You can't get industry partners for most environmental issues. It's an absolute failure in our academic funding. I can't get, for me to, do you know how hard I have to fight to get a grant to find an industry partner to get money uh, to explore climate change? And yet, right now, one in ten and strategic grants are approved uh, if they're curiosity-driven and they just come from a scientist in a university. Four out of five, if industry writes a check, are approved. Industry approve our research with their checkbooks. There's no meaningful review anymore of most of these. We're going the wrong direction. Academia has been co-opted by industry, and your money that supports academia is being wasted. Now, coming back, my apologies. I got a little editorial there, didn't I? Um, 
Uh, what, where we need to go definitely is a national water strategy, and I appreciate it. And you're one of the guys I was talking about. The people working in the trenches and the, and the scientists and the, the bureaucrats and the, and the engineers, they want to make things better. It's at the political level where we can. Environment Canada, no Environment Canada state, you know, uh, scientists can comment publicly. Oh, boy, oh, boy, that's crap. Um, you know, so uh, there's people there who can do good work. They want to do good work. We're not supporting them either in government departments and in universities. Sorry, that was probably a little editorial. That's okay. We've got uh, maybe just one more question. No, two, if, if there are questions. Hi, my name is Knut Peterson. Jim, uh, I was just wondering a quick question about these massive floods that we, you know, they're not new to us, but do they add to the problem or do they flush things out? Both. I mean, you know, they, they take a lot of nutrients off the land uh, and move them downstream, and they're a resident in the lake for a certain amount of time before the algae use them, and then we go through several cycles. Uh, so definitely, I mean, the flooding, I think, does, in, does enhance uh, nutrient movement. It enhances all kinds of sediment movement every time you get some flooding. So, you know, you, you see that. If you go a long time without flooding, you get more buildup on the lands. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's not the key issue. Flooding should be able to occur where are the wetlands, where are the vegetation buffers, you know, and why are, do we already have such elevated nutrient levels on the lands already? You know, that's, that's, that's the inappropriate part of the problem. Are there any more questions? Okay, well, I have one, but it's for the audience. This is the first time we've done this, show a film, and then you question, in this case, the filmmaker. Um, but more than the filmmaker, the originator of some of the films, the lead scientist, what did you think of the format? Does it work for you, showing a film? <laughs> Does anybody dislike it? So, <laughs> so go ahead. Well, at SAGPA, we always like to have a high bar, and certainly Jim Byrne has given us the bar, so we will try to oblige you. So, a round of applause, please, for our filmmaker and presenter. And we'll see you next week at SAGPA.